Will you turn with me this morning in the Word of God to 1 Samuel 7. 1 Samuel 7, our text this morning will be verses 1 through 12. 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 12, and I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand up with me out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and that word of the living God. 1 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 1, and the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill. They consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, it was 20 years. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, and He'll deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And so the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord God alone. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard the sons of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. The sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and he offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, so they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below beth and here is our text this morning. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped him. In mid-March, almost a year ago, I was sitting in a living room in Newport Beach where we were holding our Presbytery meeting, and somebody said, I have an announcement to make. And that announcement was that the President of the United States had called for a nationwide lockdown which would begin in just a few days and the point of it all was to flatten the curve. And from that point on, almost unfathomable, rapid, sweeping change was unleashed upon American society like a chain of falling dominoes. And on that same day, just within moments of hearing the presidential announcement, I received a call from the school district informing me that because the governor had canceled public worship services in the state of California, that we were going to lose our place in the building. And so it went. There was never a question among us of whether we would worship and whether we would meet for worship, but the question was where would we meet? 
Well, the Lord answered that prayer in all kinds of ways. We gathered in backyards. We gathered in garages. We gathered in places we would never have dreamed of to worship. We heard airplanes. We heard sirens. We heard chainsaws. We heard lawnmowers. We heard neighbors fighting. We heard just about everything imaginable in the midst of our worshipers. And yet, God continued to bless us and to strengthen us and to galvanize us around what our calling is as the people of God, which is to worship Him. We weren't stopped. Then we began to hear a whole new set of terms that we weren't used to. Lockdowns, respirators, mask mandates, social distancing, essential businesses, bubbles, PPPs, respirators, and the list goes on and on. Life changed remarkably and rapidly and almost unimaginably. And then came the riots. And then came the riots after a series of high-profile police brutality incidents. The streets of our country were filled with thousands of of protesters, buildings were burned, businesses were looted, mayhem was unleashed on every corner, it seemed like, in America. And then came the fires. Then came the fires. Our valleys filled with smoke. The state was under deluge. Millions of acres, by conservative estimates, the, the most, or the greatest amount of of acres were burned in California, as we know in our state's history. And if that wasn't enough, we had the weirdest presidential campaign any of us can remember. <laughs> Where uh, uh, one, one of the uh, candidates uh, hid in the basement and looked confused the whole time and somehow managed to get more votes than any president in the United States history. <laughs> to unseat an incumbent president who himself received the most votes of any incumbent president in the United States history. And then last week, as if all of this wasn't enough, we turned on our television screens to see an unruly mob of scoundrels attack our Capitol building and vandalize it. 2020 has been an awful year. A horrible year, the strangest year I think any of us have ever encountered. Turning that page into 2021 felt good, but it felt scary. Because the reality is, no one knew what to expect. After all of the mayhem that we've been through, the question that's on the mind of the people of God, and I would say on the mind of people everywhere, is how do we move forward? How do we move forward? with the fog of 2020 hanging over us, with all the bad taste that's still leaving in our mouth, the question is, how does faith navigate a year with all of the potential perils and uncertainties that stand before us? And the answer that I propose to you this morning is bound up in a single word, Ebenezer. Ebenezer, that's in verse 12. We're told here Samuel took a stone, he set it between Mizpah and Shem, and he named it Ebenezer. And he said, thus far the Lord has helped us. After a season of intense national, social, religious, and political hardship, Samuel sought to lead the people of God forward in confidence by raising up this Ebenezer, this stone 
of memorial. And the entire point of that stone was to say to God's people, just as the Lord has helped us all along in the past, so He will help us as we walk into the future. And that's the main point of our text this morning. We navigate the uncertainty and the potential peril of a year ahead in confidence because we remember that the way the Lord has been with us is the way the Lord will be with us. That is the testimony of Ebenezer. And I want to expound that under two points this morning, a stone of memorial and a stone of hope. It's a stone of memorial. And the entry point to thinking about it being a stone of memorial and help to us is timing. And I want you to access the point of entry to timing in the very first word in verse 12, then. Then. It's a sequential term, and it signifies that whatever follows in verse 12 is uh, coming immediately upon the heels of what has just preceded. And what has just preceded is military conquest in verse 12. The men of Israel went out to Mizpah and they pursued the Philistines and they struck them down as far as Beth-car. Well, whether you know this morning whether Beth-car is or not is irrelevant. The point of the text is to say that whatever follows in the stationing and the setting up of this memorial stone Ebenezer follows upon the heels of a crushing military conquest of the enemies of the church in the Old Testament, which is the Philistines. I want you to think about why that's so striking. So you can turn with me in your text to verse 7, where we begin to pick up on a little bit of the flavor of why the timing here is so significant. Because you read here, when the Philistines heard the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid. I want you to notice here the key in our text. The Philistines heard. They were the overlords. They were the masters. They were those who had been used to enslaving Israel for centuries. And of course... Whenever the Philistines heard of a gathering such as this at Mizpah, they became alarmed because the meaning of the word gather means to assemble in a place for a purpose. And the overlords knew that this spelt revolt. And the Philistines did exactly what you would expect the slave masters to do. We're told here in verse 7, the lords went up against Israel. And Israel behaved just like you would think. They got scared. But the key here is to notice what they did in view of their fear. That is what separates this incident from a whole series of miscellaneous incidents prior to this, which speak very badly of the people of God, because this time, instead of acting like fools and faithlessly, I want you to notice what they do by way of response in verse 8. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. You see, the, the key point here is that instead of acting in unbelief, they act in faith and they cry out to Samuel. You say, you go to the Lord and you pray for us. You ask God to rescue us. 
people of God, you've got to understand how weak and feeble that looked. Because here as they stand assembled on this hilltop in Mizpah, they stand there without swords and without shields and without strength. They've been fasting. They've been praying. They've been worshiping. And they have nothing. And in that moment as they see the Philistines charging up the hill with their chariots and with their spears and with their shields and all of their military might, they do what was almost unthinkable in a time such of peril as this. They ask God to help. They appeal to Samuel to pray. And notice here what Samuel does in verse 9. We're told he took a suckling lamb and he offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord answered him. You see, Samuel understood the gravity and the weight of the moment. And so he grabs a sacrifice and he offers it as a burnt offering. And as the smoke of the offering ascended into heaven, he was like stair steps. Carrying the prayers of deliverance for the people of God each step of the way before the very throne of God. And I want you to notice, we learn in summary that the Lord answered, but I want you to see the record of the answer in verse 10. Because here we see a split screen, if you will. Samuel was offering up a burnt offering and the Philistines are drawing near in battle. It's kind of interesting because at this point, the author of our text slows every single thing down. It's as if it's in still frame. And there's two things that he wants you to concentrate on as you think about what is before us. And the one is Samuel doing the unthinkable in view of impending military conquest. He's offering a lamb and praying. And at the other hand, the Philistines are raging. And drawing near to battle. And what it feels like is a lot like the past. Because you see people of God for not just this generation, but for generations going back hundreds of years, the way of Israel had been defeat and enslavement at the hands of their enemies, the Philistines. And so as the narrative slows down and fixes our eyes upon the drama of the moment, it suddenly kicks into gear and moves forward and we read, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines. The Lord thundered so loud in the moment of Samuel's praying and sacrifices that it blew the sandals off the Philistines and drove them back down the hill. And they began to be confused and scattered. And then the people of God somehow picked up arms, maybe even the Philistines, and they chased them all the way down to Beth Car and beat them into a pulp. Victory. The timing of our text is about victory because it's precisely after all of those events there that the Word of God says, then Samuel took a stone. Then. You see, it's timing that connects to the text. It's timing that is the entry point into understanding the application of Ebenezer because it is the timing. It marks the timing when God 
did what was spectacular in delivering a weak and helpless and vulnerable people from their captors. Timing was when Israel's defeat was locked in the jaws of the Philistine victory. Timing, when everything looked the worst. Timing, when everything was uncertain. Timing, when the people of God were helpless. When the church was weak and its enemies were at strength. God gave the victory. That's the hope of Ebenezer. That is the hope of Ebenezer. That timing is when God acted. Timing such as the time that we just recounted here in a thumbnail sketch of of all that we have been a part of and all that we have witnessed and all that we continue to be enduring. It's timing. Timing such as this when we are confounded by what we see. Timing such as this when we're fearful of whether anything will ever return to normal. Timing when we wonder whether the church will be forced to shut its doors while strip clubs and pot dispensaries keep them open. Timing such as this when the people of God are being forced to act against their conscience and against their determinations in order to get a paycheck. Timing. Everything is uncertain and we feel weak. It's a timing such as this that the Lord would have us turn our eyes back to this stone and remind ourselves that it's exactly the time like this when the Lord loves to act. It's exactly in circumstances such as these that the Lord is pleased to keep his people. It's in circumstances where things feel and seem impossible to us. It's timing when it feels like faith isn't strong enough to take our stand on Mizpah and hold our ground and pray. You see, this uh, stone here, which is planted in that valley, is a memorial stone that Samuel set up to tell the people of God, that just as God has acted in the past, so He'll act now and in the future. It is to commemorate His power. It is to tell you this morning that though you are weak, you are strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. I know that we all know these are the right things to say. I know that we all know it's faith that wins the victory. I think we all know that we are weak and no match for our enemies and the difficulty and pains of our circumstances. But there's nothing like having that spoken into our ears with an objective. Grounded as it is in the word of God. Directed as it is by the actions of this man of God, this prophet, who says to those who feel weak and confounded and overwhelmed, and anxious, and fearful, that God has by His providence, well, He set up a stone. And He says, when you feel weak, and you lack courage, and you wonder whether you can make your stand, this stone says, God will be with you. Thus far has the Lord helped us.
So we have confidence this morning, first of all, when we think about this stone of Mizpah, that it's the Lord who fights our battles, and it's the Lord who stands with us, and it's the Lord who upholds and delivers us. There's something else in this prayer, and I take that from the location of this stone. I want you to notice the stone here. We are told Samuel took it, and he set it between Mizpah and Shin. And you say this morning, I have no idea where Mizpah is, and I certainly don't know Shin. But you see, there's something about the in-between point here, it's unnamed, which is so important for us to think about. Mizpah was a well-known promontory point about five miles north of Jerusalem, where the people of God would regularly assemble and gather. But Shin is some place we have no idea of its location. Do you know that the word Shin literally means sharp rock or sharp edge? A tooth, if you will. And it's definite in the Hebrew, so it's the Shin or, or the tooth. And scholars have no idea of where it's located. But the, the reality is the, the, the description of the place name tells us there was something about this rock outcropping. There was something about this rock formation. There was something about its jaggedness that made it recognizable to anyone in that day who would have seen it. And in between these two prominent and well-known locations, this man of God wheeled a stone out between the two and he set it up right between Mizpah and Shin. The midpoint between two points of battle. Listen to how one commentator puts it. Samuel's stone would stand midway between the two scenes of battle. The battle gained by him on his knees at Mizpah and the battle gained by the Israelites when they fell on the, the Philistines by thunderstorm. So there's two battles here. There's the battle that, that Samuel fought on his knees at Mizpah and there's the battle scene where Israel beat down the Philistines at Bashem. But the point is to place the rock in between these two points of battle was to show that one was inseparably connected from the other. The point of the placement of the stone between these two places is to say that it's precisely on account of the battle, the spiritual battle of Samuel on his knees at Mizpah, that the people of God secure the defeat at Shem. And so the placement of this stone highlights the means of our deliverance. You see, Ebenezer in its placement is designed to stand as a perpetual lesson and memorial to the people of God that the way forward to victory in whatever circumstances we face is the prayers we offer on our knees before the Lord. There's no victory without the praying. There's no protection without the prayer. And there's a couple of things which reinforce this lesson about prayer from our text, which I think are so important for us to, to consider 
and to lay hold of. And one of the, the lessons about the kind of prayer that prevails to secure the victory is bound up with what we read in verse 6. It says, They gathered to Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. You see, part of the secret of the, of the power of the prayer that was offered up by Samuel and the people of God for their own deliverance is this wasn't just normal, ritualistic, ceremonial prayer. The lesson that is to be taken here is that when the people of God began to come under the conviction of their sin through the preaching of the law, they assembled that Mizpah and they said transparently, And openly before the Lord. The problem with us is we have sinned. It takes just a moment to put it in its context. But I think it's well worth this for us this morning. To see what is in view here with these words. When Israel says we have sinned against the Lord. Because for well over 20 years I think we can say from the historical context. Israel has been behaving badly. We don't have time to run down everything, but the most recent thing we can lay our hand upon is 1 Samuel chapter 4, where we learn that when the people of God were in distress because of the drawing near the Philistines in battle, somebody got the bright idea to run into the tabernacle and to grab the Ark of the Covenant of God and take it out to battle as if it were a lucky rabbit's foot. You see, the very action which is involved was entirely unlawful, but it's the mentality that stood behind it, which is treating the holy things of God with contempt, treating them like they were a soothsayer or a palm reader or some psychic connection. There was no faith in it. And the result of the action was 30,000 were slaughtered, the high priests were killed, and Eli, the 98-year-old high priest, fell over backwards and broke his neck when he heard of the defeat. And the daughter of one of the priests gave birth to her son, and her dying breath said, I name him Ichabod, for the glory of God has departed. Why had it departed? It had departed because of their gross sin and rebellion. And for a long season, the ark was in Philistia, wreaking havoc until the Philistines could take it no more and they returned it. And guess what happened as soon as the ark was returned? We learn in 1 Samuel chapter 6 that the men of Beth Shemesh got the brilliant idea to pry off the lid. And, uh, well, you've watched the movie Indiana Jones. (laughs) 50,000 people were killed. And then look at verse 1. The men of Kerioth-Jerim came and they took the ark and they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. Everything is wrong with that. The ark doesn't belong in Kerioth-Jerim. 
It belongs in Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. There's no real priests, so somebody used their internet connection to give themselves a priest degree. And instead of being in the tabernacle, it was set inside a garage somewhere, and it just sat for 20 years. The people of God didn't worship. The people of God didn't care. The people of God didn't live their life for the Lord. Instead, what we learn is you drop down into verse 3, that they served foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, and they steeped themselves in the grossest form of immorality and idolatry. Remember, all this is to unfold the statement here of verse 6. We've sinned against the Lord. I'm trying to put us into the sandals of the Israelites as they're crying out in prayer. And the thing that we need to be impressed with is that the prayer that won the victory, the prayer that prevailed with God, the prayer which was the means of beating down the spiritual enemies of the church wasn't just religious. It wasn't just with the sprinkling of some holy water and some bowing and some genuflecting and doing things that look very religious. Our culture is happy with that kind of prayer. It really is. Our culture is happy with religious looking things. We have no problem with that. What we have a problem with is truth. But we have a problem with is sincerity. What we have a problem with is repentance. What we have a problem with is admitting our sins. What we have a problem with is acknowledging we failed. What we have a problem with is our idols. What we have a problem with is our lusts. What we have a problem with is the worship and service of our appetites. That's our problem. And religious looking prayers that look pious and sophisticated are utterly useless for praying that the Lord would help us to defend us against our enemies. There's a reason why the church is weak today. There's a reason why the church doesn't have a voice today. There's a reason why the world around us isn't looking to the church for answers. One of the things that I have prayed for so diligently and repeatedly and persistently over the course of this nine months is that God would use the COVID and the mayhem and the plague and whatever else is befalling us to expose the futility of our idols. I see none of that happening. And I don't see a church really standing up against the idolatry and the bankrupt morals and the religious decay and corruption. It's okay with saying, I'm praying for you, but it's not okay with a meddlesome prayer like this. Deep down, heartfelt, sincere devotion, transparency, and honestly, God in heaven, I have sinned. And you see, that's exactly what they did because... Samuel preached that way. Notice the sermon. You see a thumbnail sketch of the sermon. Samuel would go around and preach on his soapbox throughout Israel. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the asteroids from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you. But I want you to notice the kind of preaching that's in view here. Samuel cried out to the people of God with the law saying, Turn! You can't stay in your sins. 
You can't keep worshiping your lusts. You can't keep pretending that false gods will do the trick. You can't keep looking to men and to their wisdom. There has to be a turning of the heart, a radical break with sin, a radical change of life, and it can't be phony. Samuel said, it's got to flow from the heart. You have to have a new attitude. You have to have a new desire. You have to have a new direction. You have to have new concerns. You have to be exclusive with God. Notice that here. You have to be exclusive with God. Samuel says, worship and serve Him alone. People of God, I, I've been doing this over and again. I'm trying to get us out of the sandals of the Israelites and the kinds of praying that was going on here. There was a real heartfelt repentance and a real forsaking of sin and a real changing of the ways. And that's why Samuel gathered them together to Mizpah. The reason they're on this hillside is not revolt, but to repent as a whole. They came here as the church, all of them. And they stood transparently before the Lord and acknowledged their sin. We have sinned. There's no ambiguity. There's no double talk. There's no qualification. There's no excuse making. Is that how you repent? Is that how you are dealing with sin in your life? Me. It's what I did against you. That's who I've sinned against. This is what I have done. This is how I have failed. I haven't loved you. I haven't served you. I haven't worshipped you. I've been giving my time to myself in the pursuit of my own appetite. Is that how you're repenting? Well, that was the way the people of God were repenting. They are acknowledging they hadn't been exclusive with the Lord. They've been worshiping and serving the creature and the creator. But they repented. And then notice what happened. When the Philistines heard, the sons of Israel gathered and they went up against Israel. And this uh, stands as a warning to us this morning. As the people began repenting, Satan brought the attack. I wonder if anybody in here is planning in this new year to change their ways. I wonder if anybody in here this morning is planning to put away some old sins. You see, it's precisely in that moment when we seek to make this determination to turn away what's killing us spiritually. Choking out the word from our heart. Turning us away from the Lord, making us calloused in spiritual things. It's precisely when the determination is made to break free of that, that Satan begins to marshal his forces like the Philistines. Satan doesn't have any problem with wooing you into sin. You already desired it. Satan doesn't have any trouble keeping with your sin because sin is acting on your own desires. You wanted it. You didn't just stumble and fall into what's your problem. It didn't just happen. It was what you wanted. But you see, the difficulty comes in now. Satan is fine with how you're acting. There's no trouble in it. 
He'll give you enough rope to hang yourself. It's in the moment when you say, Lord, I've had enough. I've wallowed in the misery of my sin long enough. I'm broken enough by my sinful desires. I've been hurt enough by my foolish decisions. I'm tired of the the corrupt thoughts which are gripping my heart. I need to turn from this. That's when the attack comes. That's when Satan sends the hounds of hell's fury. So I remind you this morning, people of God, that as much as we rejoice in and in delight in the strength of Ebenezer, we need to be realistic that when we pray this kind of prayer, it's a powerful prayer, but it's a prayer that comes with attack. And therefore, we need to make sure we persevere in this penitence and on this path. There's one more thing that makes it strong. This was real prayer, genuine prayer, heartfelt prayer, penitential prayer, pouring out the desires before the Lord prayer. But the other thing that made it powerful was blood. Look here at our text. We're told in in verse 9 that Samuel took a suckling lamb and he offered it for a whole burnt offering. And Samuel cried and the Lord answered. All of those things hold together. The conjunction in our text tells the story. He sacrificed and he prayed and the Lord gave the victory. You see, it's the connection of things that matters here. It's not just that he offered sacrifice. It's that he offered sacrifice and he offered prayer. It's not just that he offered sacrifice and prayed. Then God moved. You see... Samuel knew that the problem with the people of God was their sin and that they needed pardon. And so he shed the blood of that sacrifice pointing to Christ as the means by which God would hear and answer. It reminds us this morning, people of God, it's not prayer as a mechanism or as a thing that makes it powerful. Surely the religions of the world pray, right? It's not this mechanical vehicle of crying out to God somehow that is the key. The twin pillars that make prayer powerful are number one, the subjective awareness of our failing and our crying out to the Lord with repentance. And number two, the blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sins and mediates our prayers. You see, as Samuel wheels this stone out between the midpoint between Mizpah and Shin, one of the things that he was to remind the people of God about from generation to generation, that the kind of prayer that prevails to celebrate the victory that that stone represents is a peculiar kind of prayer. It's a prayer offered in faith. It's a prayer offered in penitence. It's a prayer offered in Christ. It's a prayer that's grounded in the blood of our Savior. The way we pray to withstand the attacks, the way we pray for deliverance, the way we pray for boldness, the way we pray for direction forward is this kind of prayer. 
this fervent prayer, this persistent prayer, this penitential prayer, this prayer which looks to Christ and trusts in Him. I think it's so important that we stress that this morning. This prayer was indeed effectual. The way it was offered, it was indeed effectual. And it's important this morning that we believe that. It's important this morning we speak that into our ears. Because it's too easy for us to treat prayer as the means of last resort. Don't tell me you haven't thought of it that way. It's too easy to treat prayer as the means of last resort. I remember one time sitting in a history class in antiquities and the professor was trying to teach how the Roman citizens regarded prayer. And he had this very convoluted explanation and somebody screamed out and said, it couldn't hurt. And he said, that's exactly it. That's exactly the theology that prevailed. It was the kind of looking at all of this as it couldn't hurt. Why do we think that? Why do we pray with that mentality? Why do we treat it with that? And the answer is pretty obvious because it looks fairly pale and weak in comparison to our problems. The strength of the prayer is not in the power of the mechanism. The strength of the prayer is in the penitential heart and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want to fuel your prayers for the Lord's protection and help and deliverance and support and encouragement and for all that you need, you remember, you bring that prayer before the Lord on bended knee and you take that prayer to the Christ and to his precious blood. That's what makes prayer powerful. That's what Ebenezer commemorates. The last thing, meaning. Meaning, and we've um, dribbled all around it. It's here and it's great. What does Ebenezer mean? Well, you can tell your friends or your family that you learned two Hebrew words this morning, Eben and Ezer. Eben means stone and Ezer means help. Stone of help. That's what Ebenezer means. Stone of help. And, you know, as you look across the Old Testament, these two words are used repeatedly to describe what God is for his people. God is repeatedly described as the stone of Israel, the protector, the fortress of Israel. He's often called the help of Israel. We gladly and joyfully sing Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in our trouble. You see, all of that is packed into the meaning here. Eben, Ezer, stone of help. This stone was set up by Samuel to be a constant reminder and teacher to the people of God when they passed by it. The stone looks to something more powerful. It looks to the Lord. He is help. And he's not just help in the generic. Notice the meaning of it, which is unpacked for us by the text itself. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. 
You see, Samuel wanted to take the theology of it and shoehorn it into a simple phrase. And he says, this is what you're to learn when you pass by that rock. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. But do you know what thus far really means? It means all along. All along. That's what it means. All along, the Lord has helped us. Clearly, Samuel is thinking about the military victory. Yes. All along through that battle, the Lord has helped us. But you see, Samuel is saying, take up this phrase and start applying it. All along, the Lord has helped us. All along through this season of rebellion and turning from the Lord, He was there to help us. All along in our enslavement to the Philistines, He was with us. All along in our afflictions, all along with us in our sorrows, all along with us in our fears, all along with us in our inadequacies, all along with us in our weakness, all along with us whenever we needed Him. He has helped. That's the sense, the expansiveness of the phrase is to get the people of God to look at the past and say, in every moment of every valley, in every fear you were a part of, though you didn't feel it, taste it, smell it, or touch it, there was something there. The help of the Lord. All along. Ebenezer. That is the testimony to us. You can come look at this rock with me. If you've been like this this year, believe me, it almost pains me to admit my own spiritual weakness. But I have to tell you, there's been so many times when I said, Lord, will I make it? Will my family make it? Will this church make it? That's how weak in faith I've been in 2020 at times. So if you know anything of that weakness, you can come stand right alongside me and look at that stone. And you can take from it what I'm going to take from it. All along, every time I questioned, every time I doubted, every time I feared, God was there. And because of that, Samuel set it up to say to the people of God, don't just look to the past. You look now to the future. You see, Israel was coming to an end of 300 years of moral and spiritual and religious and social and political turbulence. They stood now on the precipice of the greatest change of the history in Israel when God would raise up that great king after his own heart. Times were changing. They didn't know it, but the times were changing. One of the things that Samuel was being directed by the Spirit of God to do here was to get the people of God to look to the past and all that the Lord had been to say, you can be bold and you can be confident and you can walk forward and you can march because whatever confronts you and whatever faces you, just as God has been with you, so He will be with you in the future. You see, this is the point of this stone. It's not a stone of memorial only. It's a stone of hope for what God will be. Just as he has been with you all along, so God will be with you. What will happen this year? 
I have no idea. <laughs> will it be fast and furious? Or will it be a sea of comb-like glass? I have no idea. We're all used to the trite expression, you never knew. You never know what a new year will bring. <laughs> Man, oh man, if somebody would have said to us on December 31st, 2019, you will never believe what's going to happen this year, we'd all laugh. There's no way any of us would have ever dreamed we would see what we saw. But 2021 is here, a new year is with us. And whatever that year brings, whatever it holds, we... Uh, we face it just like Samuel taught the people of God to at their great turning point by looking to this stone of help. We can look forward with confidence. We can walk with boldness. We can um, trust that whatever we face, the Lord will be with us. And that's not just pious talk taken from a Hebrew term and an Old Testament text. It's a reality because our Ebenezer is not a stone. It's Jesus Christ. Our Ebenezer is the Son of God become incarnate. And that means that as we march forward, we don't do it as individuals. We don't do it as families. We don't even do it as a church family and as a congregation. We walk forward with Christ. He is our hope. He is our help. He is the one who the prophet said was a tested stone, a firmly placed stone, and whoever believes in him will not be disturbed. That's Christ. Tested, firmly placed, undisturbed. A foundation of faith for you for us, for his church. So people of God, let's cling to our Ebenezer, Christ. And let's walk forward in boldness, with prayer, and with the strength of the Lord. Confident that whatever we face, our stone of help will not fail us. Father, we thank you for an old text with deep meaning. We remember that you framed the worlds to be just exactly what they are, so that the lessons learned by the people of God thousands of years ago stay with us today. They're as fresh, real, new, and true as they were when they first were uttered. We thank you this morning for the great hope and promise of Ebenezer. All along, you are with us. May you cause us to cherish that in our hearts. And may it be something that grounds our faith, makes us bold, and leads us to pray with all diligence, knowing that everything hinges upon not our strength, but yours. And as we do that, Lord, would you deliver us from anxiety and fear, concern, and just do what you called us to do as we walk forward, which is to subdue, conquer, and take dominion for the glory of God, that Christ may be exalted through us. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.